better job than what he did in preparing the Christian's heart for trials and for difficulties. And we saw that the way that he did that was he gave us a series of commands that would help each and every one of us navigate through the trials and difficulties in our life in a faithful way. And not only that, but to be able to give us hope as we confront them and as we're confronted by them. And so what he did is at the end of that section, and at the end of that section was where, where, where um, Dan preached to verse 18, that's the end of that section on trials, what he did was he ended on a really high note. Did you notice that? What he did was he basically took us out of the doldrums of difficulties, out of the despair and the discrepancies of our depravity. Do you like all those Ds? I worked on that all week. All of those things. He brought us up out of that basically into the heavenly places. He ends up on this really high note and he does it by reminding us of the goodness of God. He reminded us that every good and perfect gift, whether here or in the world to come, comes from God and from God alone. And the greatest demonstration and example of God's goodness was the fact, as, he, as James says himself, was the fact that he saved us by his own free will. Catch this, it's important. His goodness, God's goodness, is shown in its greatest extent in the fact that he would save his enemies. That people who were in rebellion against God, that he would send his only son, Jesus Christ, to die in their place to pay for their sin debt. An incredible, the most incredible example of love we have in the world in which we live. And so what we find is, he's, what James is kind of closing in on is this. If God was that good to us who were enemies of God at one point, and he would show that kind of goodness to his enemies, how much more can we expect him to be good now that we are children of God? And he says, God is so good to us that even in the midst of trials and difficulties, God has the ability to make it for our own good. So what he does there is he lets us know, he brings us up, he helps us to meditate at the end of all these trials about God's goodness. But guess what James does? He doesn't allow us to stay there. He doesn't allow, James never allows us to just sit around and pontificate on great theological truths and doctrines all day long. Does he want us to think on them? Yes. Does he want us to meditate on them? Yes. But he wants to bring us now down to earth where real faith is lived out. See, this is the whole burden of James in this book. Here's, here, here's James' burden. He wants you and I to understand whenever there is a new birth, there will always be a new life that follows. I want you to hear that. Whenever there is a new birth, there will always be a new life that follows. Can you imagine, just for a moment, if our church in Nassau County in our deep-rooted religious ways, religious in not a great way, okay, more in a negative sense, can you imagine if we just understood that truth? That if you are truly born again in Jesus Christ, it will always be followed by the example of you living a life dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ. Most people that I have met in Nassau County, this is what they believe. They believe new birth, but you can continue to live the old life, and they have no problem with that. I was born again, I know that I have eternal life, but you know what, I've never really changed, I never really have a hunger after God, I'm not really pursuing him, I'm okay with that. James says that condition simply doesn't exist. He says if you have a new birth, if you are born again in Jesus Christ, then you will live a new life which is separated and given and lived unto Jesus Christ. You guys got that? 
That, that, that's, what he, that's what he's trying, that's the burden of the book. And so what he does through the book is he's giving examples of what the Christian life, this life under Christ looks like. So in that first section from chapter, uh, from verse 1 to 18, he lets us know what a Christian looks like when they're facing trials and difficulties. Now he's going to enter into a new section of the book, and now he's going to say, hey guys, I want to show you something else that Christianity looks like. When people are truly born again, I want to show you what it looks like, what it looks like and how they live and how they respond when they're confronted by the word of God. When believers of Jesus Christ are exposed to the word of God, they respond differently to those who are not in the faith. They respond differently to non-believers in Jesus Christ. You get that? And so what he does is he gives us three ways in which we respond. True believers respond when we come face to face to the word of God. Now, how is that? What, what are these ways? Well, there's a couple ways that we see in the, in the Word of God here. First of all, every believer in Jesus Christ is to be quick to hear. Every believer in Jesus Christ is to be quick to hear. Now, notice this in verse 19. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. Now, I want to draw your attention to those first two words, know this. This is where we have to kind of make a decision of how we're going to interpret this passage. It can be interpreted or understood in two ways. This could be an imperative that he's giving to the people or what we call an indicative. Just let me explain, okay, before you're like, I'm shut off already, all right? Indicative, if we're going to interpret this as an indicative, it simply means this, that James is saying, hey, know this. I'm giving you guys some more commands. Here's some new commands I haven't given you yet. All right? I don't know why I'm kind of using a, a northern accent. I don't know where that came from. But anyway, he's like, look, I gave you some commands in the beginning of this section. Now I'm going to give you three more brand new commands for you to be able to follow. Okay? So that would be in the imperative. Brand new commands for us to be able to follow. Or he could mean this in what is known as the indicative. The indicative, in a sense, and I think actually this is what James is doing, by the way. I think what he's doing is, if it was that way, then it would be translated, you know this. In other words, he'd be saying, in light of what you now know, do this. He's not just heaping more to-dos on us. Isn't that nice? I mean, I'm having a hard time keeping up with the to-dos I already have. He's not just adding to your to-do list. Does anybody need a shorter to-do list? I do, Okay. And I know my wife does because she has to do most of it. So uh, I love you. So, um, so, so, so we don't need more to do. But understand, there's a radical difference between him just saying, here's more things that you have to do, and him saying, hey, in light of what you now know, this is how you should now live. What is it that we know? We just went over it. We know the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know the goodness of God. We know that he is good to us in that what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how his great love for us was shown. He says, so now in light of God's saving grace to you and the goodness that he showed to you, this is now how you ought to live. Do you see the difference? One is do this. The other one is, hey, I'm going to show you the natural way to live in light of the gospel. And when you are changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you hear the word of God, this is how you ought to naturally respond. This is your act of worship. So what is it then that he's telling us to do here? He's telling us, first of all, to be quick to listen. Now, I need to stop here for a minute because I understand that I'm dealing with people that are probably very familiar with this passage. Yes? Familiarity? This is what we call coffee mug verses, right? They're on your coffee mug. You know, This, this is a verse that, that to me, is, is what angry youth pastors and angry parents use when they're frustrated with their kids. 
You, you don't understand that, right? This is what youth pastors, they're ticked off, they go to the book of James. Here's what they say. They get up and they go, see, this is what some of y'all's problem is. You're slow to hear. <laughs> Clean out your ears, James says. Listen, be slow to speak. This is your problem. So it's a way to vent frustration. Parents do the same thing. This is the kind of verses that we write out on a little card and we plaster to the glass so that every, kids, every time our kids are brushing their teeth, they sit there and go, slow or quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then, and then all of a sudden you said, that's right, don't you forget about that. You need to be quick to hear. I tell you to clean your room, you need to clean it up. I was right, and I don't want any back talk, be slow to speak, and don't you even think about getting angry with it, right? Okay, so I'm just trying to give you a little idea of some of the applications and some of the way that we ultimately hear this, but I want you to understand it in context. I'm not saying that those things are not true or, or there's no truth to them or they're completely inappropriate applications. I think what he's saying here, though, is this is in light of the Christian and his exposure to the Word of God. He says that you ought to be quick to hear when the Word of God is being preached. When you are being confronted with the Word of God, you need to be quick to hear. <clears throat> Here's what he's saying in, in, in just very simple terms. He wants all of his original audience to love the Word of God and be anxious and eager to hear it. But did you notice it doesn't just stand for those original believers, but it's for all believers of all times. Did you notice that phrase in the beginning, every person? He says, everybody should have a healthy desire to hear and to be in the word of God. Every believer, not just the pastor, not just the missionary, not just the theologian, not just the professor, but every person. You say, even me, are you every person? Yes, you're every person. Why is that the correct way for a believer in Christ to respond? Because when God has changed us, and when the gospel is a reality to us, then we sit there and we have a love for God, and we should have a love and a desire to hear what it is that God would say about himself, say about us, and what the will of God is for our life. Would you agree? That's a natural response to somebody who's been radically changed by the gospel message. You know, it's interesting just how much the Bible instructs us about listening or about speaking and, and, and how we should ultimately speak. Uh, the Bible teaches us uh, here in, in Mark chapter uh, 4, verse 24, it tells, us, um, it, it tells us just really quick that we need to be careful what we hear. Excuse me, not speak, but hear. Uh, we need to be careful what we hear. You, you, know, you need to be careful about what you're listening to, what preachers you're listening to, what books you're reading. You need to be careful what's coming in. But, but also we see an emphasis, especially by Jesus and James here, that we need to not only be careful and cautious by what it is that we're, what it is that we're hearing, but how it is that we're hearing. For example, James will say in Luke chapter 8 and verse 18, he says, take care then how you hear. Jesus then gives us the reason why. He says, for to the one who has more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks will be taken away. So he, J Jesus simply says this, hey man, when you hear the word of God, you better eagerly be listening to it. You need to take it in as a believer. You need to apply it to your life. You need to submit your life to it. He says, if you do, I'm going to give you more of my precious word. I'm going to give you more understanding in the word of God. And so he says, or... If I give you the word of God and you're confronted with the word of God and you do nothing with it, you don't receive it, you're not eager to be able to receive it and to apply it and to be able to submit to it, he goes, not only am I not going to give you more, but I'll take away what it is that you already think you know. Do you see that? Huge words. 
And then Jesus will go on in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, and he'll say this, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. Did you know that you and I live in a very unique time in history? We live in a time that we have more unprecedented access to the word of God than any other people, any other where, at any other time in history. There's no matter where you go, you can have access to the word of God, to the truth of God's word. And so if, if he says, to whom much is given, much then is required, then how much is required from you and I? So you and I, when we hear the word, we need not to be passive when we're hearing it, but we need to be eager to hear the word. He says, this is the natural response of every true believer. Now, what does this look like practically? What does this look practically laid out? Well, I, we're kind of already there. Uh, we already said, okay, you know, we could yell at our kids or, you know, yell at a youth group or whatever. But I think that in context, this is what he's saying. I think that we should be eager when we come to the house of God. I think that we come to the house of God, our hearts should be yearning to hear the word of God. Um, this is in the scriptures in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to what, listen to what the, the, the wisest man in the world said. He said, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing, that they are doing evil. But be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter the word before God. He says, for God is in heaven and you are in earth. Therefore, let your words be few. He's just sitting there going, listen, you just need to hear. You need to hear what the word of God is saying. You need to be anxious for it. You know, I got to tell you, even in the last 20 years that I've been in ministry, things have radically changed, especially in the last six years. Have, have churches not radically changed in the last six years? It's gotten so complicated. It's really leaving me behind. Isn't that encouraging, right? The times are leaving your pastor behind. And the reason I say that is because it's so complicated now. Now there's just so much lighting and there's so much technical aspect and there's so much, there's cameras and there's, and, and there's, there's, there's PowerPoint and there's overheads and, 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 and there's atmosphere that people are trying to build. There's actually professionals that come into churches that help them to create the appropriate atmosphere for people to be able to come and worship. This is getting way too complicated for me. I'm not saying that those things aren't important or don't have a place somewhere. We certainly don't want to come into a place that's distracting like with, with, with a trapeze swinging over here while I'm preaching. We don't want that to, to, to happen. But what I'm ultimately saying is, and this is what God would be saying, is that preaching must always be preeminent. To come together and say, when I get to the house of God, I love all that stuff, or I like that music, or I don't, or I like the way the atmosphere is, or I like the temperature of the building, or I don't like the temperature of the building, and everybody can bellyache over that, yes? We can do all that, but what we should be driven for is, God, I'm coming. Why? Because I'm eager to hear your word. And here's the key for us at Celebration. If you want to know more about us, we have a high view of preaching. And the reason we have a high view of preaching is we, because we believe that the Bible says that we are to preach the word of God, proclaim the word of God. And let me, let me share this with you. We believe here at Celebration that the Bible teaches that when a minister of the gospel, when a preacher gets up and he preaches the word of God and he gets it right, when he's actually preaching as it was intended to be able to be preached, that it has the authorial intent of the original author and of the Holy Spirit who inspired him to be able to write those words, then guess what? Then God is speaking that Sunday. He is saying everything that he would say 
and no different as though if he were to come down and look you face to face and speak to you face to face, he would say the same thing that the preacher is saying from the pulpit when he gets it right. So should we not then sit there and go, much, much as Samuel would say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Be anxious for that. A.T. Robertson, who is a well-known preaching professor, said this. He said, poor listening will make poor preaching of a really good sermon. He says, good listening will come near to making a good sermon out of a poor one. Let me kind of give you life application here. Here's how it looks. I have preached some really amazing messages and sermons at this church over the last nine years. Some really amazing sermons. And here's what's happened. I mean, they were home runs out of the park. Some of you came in too tired, you completely missed it, and you thought it was bad preaching. I mean, there were some phenomenal sermons that would just blow your head apart if you actually understood what was being said. That would be really messy and gross. But it would just, it would, you'd be astounded. But the truth of the matter is, your mind was somewhere else and you came in. And because you're a poor listener, you didn't hear God speak. And it seemed like a bad sermon. Okay, now let's, let's, let's switch it. There were some really awesome messages that I preached. There had been many really poor sermons that I preached. Really poor sermons that I've gotten up and preached. And even while I'm preaching them, I know how poor they are because I'm talking to myself as I'm talking to you. I'm preaching, but this I kind of go out of my body at the moment and I'm looking down and I'm like, dude, shut it down. Shut it down. This is horrible. What are you doing? Walk away. Abort. Abort. Before it's too late, and this is the conversation I'm having, you're like, no wonder you stink at preaching, right? You're having a conversation with yourself. But here's what's amazing to me. It's always amazing that what saves me is that some of you are good listeners. And I've got a sister, she's sitting right back there. Don't even look at her. I'm just going to point at her right now. Every, every week, it's, it's like times when I just leave and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the worst thing I've ever done in my life. She comes up and she's not trying to, but I'll just I'll say, hey, how are you doing? She's good. I know she's an encourager and she'll come by and go, oh, Pastor Mike. That word that James said right there is absolutely just taking over my heart. I can't believe it. And I'm like, guess what? Bad sermon saved by what? Good listening. So what all do we do? Another, Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That's the appropriate approach to God's word. Number one, we need to be quick to hear. Number two, we need to be slow to speak, all right? So what he's saying here is he's really identifying one of the biggest problems that most of us have, if we're honest, and I'm not so sure we're capable of being so, but let's just try. Uh, And the key is is this, uh, we listen too little and we talk too much. When I grew up, when I, there was a song that said, you talk too much, you never shut up, right? So it was, it was a rap, and I almost rapped it for you today, but I'm not going to, all right? So the idea is that we listen too little and we talk too much. Most of us, if you've been around church at all, you've heard the quote from the Stoic philosopher Zeno, who said this, we have two ears and one mouth, therefore we should listen twice as much as we speak. We're probably familiar with that. But are we more familiar with the ancient rabbis? And here's a saying very similar to what they said, Uh, They said this, men have two ears but one tongue, that they should hear more than they speak. The ears are always open, ever ready to receive instruction, but the tongue is surrounded with a double row of teeth to hedge it in and to keep it within its proper bounds. 
You know, the Bible is full of instructions again on how you and I need to watch our words, what, how careful we need to be about what comes out of our mouth. For example, Proverbs ten nineteen says this, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. Proverbs 17, verse 27, a man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even-tempered. Now, we could all go there, and we could begin to reflect right now of, man, you know what, today, I should have been slow to speak. I said some things even on the way here I shouldn't have said. Listen, let's wait on that application for a little bit. See, James is going to say a great deal about the tongue. When we get to chapter 3, almost the entire chapter is going to be dedicated to the danger of the tongue. It's unbelievable power to destroy and our inability to be able to control it. All that is going to be in chapter 3. But what I want you to do is I want you to understand and bring application based on the context. What is he saying? You need to be slow to speak when it comes to you hearing the word of God. You need to be quick to hear but slow to speak. Well, what does that mean? What does hearing have to do with talking? Well, let me give you a little bit of more background of what's happening with James. You've got to understand, their churches were far different. If we had the Apostle Paul and all of them come to this day and they saw kind of what we were doing, they'd probably have a little bit of a panic attack. You know, they'd be, what in the world's going on? Because in James, in the early church, most of their churches were done where? Within a home. And so what they would do is, as they were within that home, uh, there would be a lot of con- uh, conversation that would be going on. There'd be a primary teacher, they'd be teaching the word, and the people that were there were encouraged, actually, to interject. See, this is why things are completely different. You are not encouraged to interject, okay, this morning, all right? You will throw me completely off, all right? And unless you want to say, amen, even that uh, throws me off every once in a while. But notice this, they would sit there, and, and so this was a good thing, because if somebody had a question, they could immediately raise their hand, and they begin to ask, I don't know if they raised their hand, but they would just ask, but with good things also come with bad things. So that interaction would help them learn, but the bad part is, is you always had people that were contentious and disruptive, and they always love to hear themselves speak. Anybody ever know somebody like that? Right? I mean, if you've ever been a part of a small group, you know who they are. Yes? Okay. And some of you are like, darn it, that's me. I speak quite a bit. Well, listen, all right? Listen to what the word is saying. Um, what, what would happen is they would begin to argue, they would begin to dissent, they would begin to cause conflict, and then the teaching of the word wouldn't be had. Now, what's the problem with this? Look, bottom line is there are people who just, and I'm convinced, love to hear themselves speak. When I was in seminary, um, not, not the graduate work, or not the doctoral work, but the master's, when I was going through there, uh, we would have big classrooms. And I, I was so hungry to be able to hear the word and hear the truth and hear what these guys, I mean, they're, they're, they're experts in their field. They have their PhDs, some of them, several PhDs in the field that they're teaching. And I get up there and I would just sit there just like a nerd in the front row. And I'd just be sitting there like, give it to me. I have my little recorder, you know, and I'd just sit there and I'm like, man, just, just feed me, man. I know it's hard to believe, but just feed me, just give it to me, dude. You know, and, and I'd be all ready, all ready right there. And some joker in the class would constantly be raising his hand. Every time somebody says something, he'd raise his hand, and he wouldn't be asking questions. He goes, yes, I believe that I read that book one time, but did you read the... And I'm like, dude, shut up in the name of Jesus. I'm like, look, I didn't pay all this money to hear your ignorance. I paid all this money to hear this guy. He's the one who I'm paying. Pipe down, man, right? And so what happens is a lot of times what happens is you hear the word of God and you immediately want to respond, but you don't let the word of God work in your heart. You don't let it settle in your heart. You're quick to speak. 
Somebody says something, and you're very quick of objecting. We've got some folks like that in our church. It, it just, it, it's, I'll be honest with you, it just kind of wears me out. I can't say anything. I mean, I can't say anything. And, and, and people have actually said this. What we ought to do is we ought to allow people to tweet messages and then put them up on the screen while you're preaching. Shoot me now. How awful would that be? It would be the worst thing ever, right, in, in, in the preaching events. And so the idea is this, is that people are just argumentative. They hear a little bit, but here's the thing. They don't hear the whole thing. They rush to conclusions. They make false conclusions. What, what else do they do? Well, here's the problem. If they're speaking too much, then it means that they're not learning and they're not listening. You know, it's funny because people that like to talk all the time and not listen, what's interesting about them is even when they're listening, they're really talking. Because even when you're trying to explain something to them, they're not listening to a word you're saying. They're thinking about the words that they're going to say in rebuttal to what you're saying, right? Have you ever noticed that? And sometimes I'll slip something in. I'll sit there and go, yes, well, James said, hey, you're ugly. And then James would go on just to see if they're, they're, they're listening at all. And you know what? Half the time, they're not listening. They're just moving on to the next point. I'm like, why am I even talking with you, right? And so we move on. Did you love to have a righteous pastor, right? And so we'll keep looking. So anyway, we're working on that, though. And so... So, so what happens is when we begin to speak too often, we're jumping to wrong conclusion, we're making hasty just judgments, we're quick to say the worst, we're quick to offer bad advice to others. Here's what I would just have you say. You've got to understand that for every word that we speak in light of the word of God is that we're going to hold accountable to God with. When you tell somebody something from the word of God, you're placing yourself as a position of a teacher. And the Bible says you place yourself in a higher regard at that point, and there's going to be a greater responsibility on your part. So he just says, just listen. Even internally, don't, don't let your mind run around. Listen. It's not saying just accept everything, you know, without, without filtering it. He's not saying don't be a careful hearer, but, but don't be critical about everything that you're hearing because it will keep you from understanding the true the truth of God's word. It will impact not only you, but others. That professor that I had, that young man, he said this uh, to, um, dur during one of the things. He says, gentlemen, what will help you to be slow to speak concerning the word of God is if you will come to the true realization that you know far less than what you think you know. I thought that was good advice. There's a third thing that he tells us to do when we're confronted with the word of God. Every believer in Christ should be slow to anger. So he says here, he says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Uh, see the word anger there? The anger, that word anger literally means an infuriated disposition. That's what it speaks of. And every time, that, almost every time in the New Testament when this word for fear is used, this Greek word, it is almost always used to be able to describe a sinful anger. Now the reason that I say that is because the Bible teaches that not all anger is sinful. In fact, we see Jesus Christ angry in Mark chapter 3 in verse 5. We see that he's angry, and we know that Jesus was without sin, so we understand that you could be angry, but yet not sin. And so what we find is when we talk about Jesus' anger or a good type of anger, we often use the word righteous anger, right? Or righteous indignation is what it's called sometimes. And so what that is is simply this, is when we see things that are wrong, when we see things that are injustices being done in the world, there's something in you, hopefully the Spirit of God, which makes you sit there and becomes angry. When you see children being abused, it should, in the heart of a believer, make you angry. When you see a woman, a frail woman, being abused, or the elderly, or you see the poor being taken advantage of, there should be something in the heart of every believer who sits there and says, that's injustice, and there should be some anger there. 
I had a young man who came one time, young pastor, friend of mine, he says, I'm so disgusted with our church right now. I'm so angry at my church right now. He says, why? And he says, well, I've been preaching there for two years, and I keep preaching on the importance of missions and evangelism and reaching people for Jesus Christ. But for two years, they will not change the budget. I said, well, what's wrong with the budget? And he says, we spend 10 times more in our budget on Wednesday night fellowship dinners than we do on missions and evangelism in our church. I sat back and I said, brother, I don't know what I'm praying for you about, but you ought to be angry. That ought to be something that angers you. People are lost, dying, going to hell apart from any gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're feeding their faces. That is an okay thing for you to be angry at. But then I warned him, just as the scriptures warned, warned, warned us, to be angry and sin not. In other words, it means have righteous anger, but don't demonstrate that anger in an unrighteous way. A simple way to put it, don't bomb an abortion clinic, okay? I mean, that, that's it, okay? Uh, this pastor, don't go and smack the congregants, all right, because they're not doing the budget right. That would be a wrong way to do these things. But notice, James isn't talking specifically about righteous anger, though. What, is, what kind of anger is he talking about? Sinful anger. And so there's this natural progression that I want you to see. Now think about it because this is where people awfully often apply it because of this natural progression. If you have a group of people together, whether it's a husband and wife or a family and a father and mother or a small local church, um, if they're not quick to hear and they're quick, they're, they're, they're slow to hear and they're quick to speak, then they're naturally going to be quick to anger, right? So if you have people who aren't listening... You get together, husband and wife, you're not listening to each other. You're just trying to talk over each other. What's the natural response to that? Anger. Don't, don't you see that? And then you can almost hear the anger in people's words. Hey, can I get a word in here? Don't you ever just, once you just ever listen to what it is that I'm trying to say, you can hear the anger in those words. But again, let's be very careful how it is that we're ultimately trying to apply this particular truth of Scripture. It's in light of the word. When he says don't be angry at the hearing of God's word, what does anger and hearing the word have anything to do with each other? You know what the bottom line is? It has way too much to do with each other. The Bible does some really amazing things. But one of the things that it is exceptional at is making sinful man angry. Because what happens is, is you and I as sinful men and women, would you agree? Any sinners in the house? Raise your hand. All right, good. Some of you are not sure. You got a halfy. I don't know what that is all about, all right? And so the whole idea is, look, we are sinners whether you know it or not. But the truth of the matter is we all, every one of us, love to feel better about ourselves and think we're better than what we actually are. A anybody like that in here? And one of the things we love to do is we love to suppress that sinful side. We love to show only the good side. So we're really good at hiding our sin. Look, there's people borderline or might even be cheating on their wives in this place, committing adultery on their wives. Nobody even knows about it. It's pretty amazing at hiding sin. There's men who are having problems with pornography, and they're, they're, they're covering up. Nobody else knows. And, and, and if you looked them in the face, you wouldn't even know that they're doing it. Some people are, 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 are really abusing the, the finances and the money and the things that God has ultimately given them, but nobody around them looks. Why? Because we like to suppress those things and make ourselves look ever so good. But here's the beauty of God's word. No matter how hard we try to hide it, God's word is better at getting at it and exposing it and laying it in front of us. The anger part comes in this way. I had a young man... Uh, come to me one time, and this was actually just in the last couple of weeks, and he asked me this question. I thought it was a great question. I said I'd have to get back to him. 
And I, and I did, but he, here's the question. He says, he says, as a pastor, what has surprised you in ministry? What most surprised you in ministry? I'm saying, wow, brother, that's a big question because there's been a lot of surprises in ministry. And I said, but let me tell you what I think the biggest surprise for me has been. The biggest surprise for me has been in a pastor, specifically in preaching the word of God, is the uncanny and incredible ability for people to hate me with so much hatred when I don't even know them. I've had folks that I haven't had two words with that hate my ever-loving guts simply because of the word of God that is being preached. See, it's hard to be mad at truth. It's much because we don't want to admit that we're mad at truth, right? So it's better for us to be mad at somebody who has that truth. It's easier to sit there and go, he's judgmental. He told me I was in sin than to sit there and go, what he said was right. Or to say, hey, listen, I disagree with what the Bible ultimately says. Nobody wants to say that. They, they, they look hor- horrible. And, I, and I've, we, we've had folks, it's been so sad over the years. One of the saddest things I've seen is people come to the church, they love it, they, they love the, 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 the music, and they, they love the fellowship, and they love the word, then all of a sudden we get to something, because we do expository preaching through books, eventually you're going to get to something that's going to tick you off, amen? How many of you have ever been ticked off at the preaching of God's word? Raise your hand. Right? Look, I've preached it and been ticked off with myself, right? And so you get ticked off, why? Because what's happening is the, the spotlight of God's truth in his word is rubbing your sin raw, man. And it is rubbing you raw, and it hurts, and it is exposed. And you thought that you had that so well hidden, so you need to hate something. You hate the truth, but it's easier for you to be able to pass it on to someone else and to be able to push it off and just be angry and and folks will leave listen this is what he's saying when you hear the word of god don't just get angry don't just get angry because you know what you do when you get angry you leave or what you do is you you separate yourself from that truth let me just give you just a little bit of heads up you may leave where the truth is being preached but it's still the truth that's the great thing about truth no matter where you go there it is it doesn't change. That's the whole definition of truth. It does not change. I know what culture we live in today, and truth is relative, hogwash. God's truth is lasting forever and ever. So what do we do? He says, listen, don't just walk away. Don't just be angry. Don't let it just anger you inside of your heart. That's the inappropriate response. What's the appropriate response? He says in verse 20, he says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Listen to me. As your pastor... If you hear the word of God, somebody speaks into your life or whoever it is, and you're hearing it, and it's rubbing you the wrong way, and you're angry, you need to understand that the Holy Spirit is using that to speak to you. He's using it to make you more like God. It's not for you to shut your ears or to dodge the sermon series or for you not to listen anymore. Put your fingers inside of your ear. It's for you to sit there. You know, Charles Spurgeon had this old saying. He says, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one that got hit. Guess what? If you're yelping, then you got hit. And if you got hit, it's because there's some type of sinfulness that's sticking out that God's taking aim at. And he wants you to do something with it. And so what does he say that we ought to do? Verse 21. Let me unpack this very quickly. He says, therefore, put away, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Okay, let me just say this. This idea of putting away literally means to put off or to take off. It's the same words that, that, that Paul used over in Colossians chapter 3. 
And what he's doing is he's describing, he's giving kind of this metaphor, this picture of taking off dirty clothes. And in Colossians chapter 3, he said, hey, look, he goes, you must put them all away. And he gives us an idea, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. He says, and do not lie to one another, seeing that you, you have put off the, uh, put off the old self and put on the new self. Then in verse 12, he goes back and he says, but put on, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. Here's the idea. In the first century, when people would come to faith in Jesus Christ and they would go to be baptized, when they'd be baptized, they would literally take off those old clothes and they would be given new clothing to be baptized in. Or, some of the times, the new clothing would become after their washing. They would burn the old clothes and they would put on brand new clothes as a picture of, guess what? Now that I am new and now that I am washed, I cannot put on the same life that I once disregarded. I now have to put a new life on. And can I tell you this? There is a once and for all decision when we first came to faith in Jesus Christ to do that, but it takes the rest of your life to do it. It takes the rest of your life to do it. Some of you are sitting there going, I'm struggling. Great! What great news! That pastor is so unloving. He said, it's great that I'm struggling as a believer to be faithful to God. Amen and Amen. That's the life of the Christian life. If you're not struggling, that means you're giving in. Your struggle is there because you're trying to put off. You're trying to put off the old man. You're trying to put off those things that are not consistent with who you are now as a child of God. He says, put it all the way. Then notice this. Here's how we, this is what, in the positive, what we need to do for the word. He says, and receive with meekness the implanted word. Receive with meekness the implanted word. He says, don't be angry. Be humble. Sit there and say, God knows me better than I know myself. If he says this is off, then it is off. I'm not going to keep determining what is right or wrong for my life. I'm going to submit to what he says is right or wrong for my life. And what I'm going to do, and notice that he says receive with meekness the implanted word. Here's what happens. Most of the time we hear it, it's just lying dormant. We hear the word, we hear the truth, but the problem is we're kind of, anybody ever do that? You hear the truth, it's bugging you. You know you need to do it. Am I the only guy like this? You know you need to do it. In fact, sometimes you're grumpy that you even heard the truth. Have you ever gotten that? Why do I have to hear that? Now I've got to do something with it. Hurry! <laughs> you know? And so, so you're like, okay, now I have to do something with it. And there's the Holy Spirit sitting there and going, you know, you know my word. You know, it's imp- you know it's been implanted. He says, what you need to do is you need to receive it. Receive it means to humble yourself and submissively say, God, not my way, but your way. And then did you notice what he said at the end there? He says, which is able to save your souls? It's the same exact truth of salvation. Salvation is this, is you can hear the message all the time, all day long. You can know the message like crazy, but the truth is many, maybe not here, but many in Nassau County have not truly received it within their heart, which is demonstrated in a full submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what salvation looks like. So listen, I don't know where the word is coming for you. Yes, Sunday mornings. But you know, sometimes it's coming from your spouse. Sometimes it's coming from a friend. You need to listen. Be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Don't, don't argue against it all the time. Don't argue it away all the time. So there, people do that all the time. You, you sit there and you just try to give them clear scripture and you go, this is what the Bible says. Yes, but over in such and such it says this. And you know very well they're not trying to submit to the word. They're trying to find a way out of the word. And finally, man, just don't be angry. This morning, 
with maybe a sin that you've been angry at or dodging or whatever, might today be the day that you just sit there and say, God, I'm going to receive it with meekness. Come to you. You've spoken to my heart. I've received it. Forgive me, Jesus. Maybe there's going to be some who sit there and go, man, I just need to be saved. I need to be born again. Jesus, will you save me? Whatever it is, would you do what the Holy Spirit's leading you to do? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you this morning, and I thank you for this time together.